Welcome to episode four of the Empowered Beyond Pain podcast, proudly brought to you by Bodylogic Physiotherapy. I'm Kevin Wernley, a physiotherapist and PhD researcher, and each week I'm joined by world-leading physiotherapy specialists and clinical researchers, Professor Peter O'Sullivan and Dr. JP Kinnearo as co-hosts with a simple goal, to help you make sense of science, bring evidence to your eardrums, and empower you to better health plus empowering clinicians to provide the best care for people with pain. In this week's episode, we start by playing audio from a brand new resources we put together with the help of some prominent global patient advocates to summarise a very popular research article titled Back to Basics, 10 Facts Every Person Should Know About Back Pain. This scientific paper was published in the prestigious medical journal, the British Journal of Sports Medicine, or BJSM, a few months ago, and today we discuss some of the key concepts raised in that paper. Professor Peter O'Sullivan led the paper, which was also co-authored by Dr. J.P. Canero and myself, as well as Dr. Kieran O'Sullivan, Dr. Ivan Lin, Dr. Sam Bunsley, and Dr. Mary O'Keefe. Next week, we hear the stories behind the patient advocates that presented the facts, as well as talk to Joletta Belton, who presented low back pain fact number one and is the patient partnership lead on the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy's editorial board. She discusses her journey with persistent pain. As always, show notes, including resources, references and the transcript, as well as video of this conversation, can be found at www.bodylogic.physio forward slash podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Empowered Beyond Pain podcast. And remember to ask, is there more to pain than damage? Persistent back pain can be scary, but it's rarely dangerous. Persistent back pain can be distressing and disabling, but it's rarely life-threatening and you're very unlikely to end up in a wheelchair. Getting older is not a cause of back pain. Although it's a widespread belief and concern that getting older causes or worsens back pain, research does not support this and evidence-based treatments can help at any age. Persistent back pain is rarely associated with any serious tissue damage. Backs are strong. If you have had an injury, tissue healing occurs within three months, so if pain persists past this time, it usually means there are other contributing factors. A lot of back pain begins with no injury or with simple everyday movement. These occasions may have contributions from stress, tension, fatigue, inactivity or unaccustomed activity, which can make the back sensitive to movement and loading. Scans rarely show the cause of back pain. Scans are important, but only for a minority of people. Lots of scary sounding things can be reported on scans such as disc bulges, degeneration, protrusions, arthritis and so on. Unfortunately, the reports don't say that these findings are very common in people without back pain and that they don't predict how much pain you feel or how disabled you are. Scans also often change with most disc prolapses shrinking over time. Pain with exercise and movement doesn't mean you're doing harm. When pain persists, it is common that the spine and surrounding muscles become really sensitive to touch and with movement. Importantly, the pain you feel during movement and activities reflects how sensitive your structures are, not how damaged you are. So it's safe and normal to feel some pain when you start to move and exercise. This usually settles down with time as you get more active. In fact, exercise and movement are one of the most effective ways to treat back pain, and having a health professional coach you through the process can be helpful. 
Back pain is not caused by poor posture. How we sit, stand and bend has not been shown to cause back pain, even though these activities may be painful. A variety of postures are healthy for the back, and it's safe to relax during everyday tasks such as sitting, bending and lifting with a round back. In fact, it can be more efficient. Back pain is not caused by a weak core. Weak core muscles do not cause back pain. In fact, people with back pain often tense their core muscles as a protective response. This is like clenching your fist after you've sprained your wrist. Being strong is important when you need the muscles to switch on, but being tense all the time isn't helpful. Learning to relax the core muscles during everyday tasks can be helpful. Backs do not wear out with everyday loading and bending. The same way lifting weights makes muscles stronger, moving and loading make the back stronger and healthier. So activities like running, twisting, bending and lifting are safe if you start gradually and practice regularly. Pain flares don't mean you're damaging yourself. While pain flare-ups can be very painful and scary, they are not usually related to tissue damage. The common triggers are things like poor sleep, stress, tension, worries, low mood, inactivity or unaccustomed activity. Controlling these factors can help prevent exacerbations, and if you do have a pain flare-up, instead of treating it like an injury, try to stay calm, relax, and keep moving. Injections, surgery, and strong drugs are usually not a cure. Spine injections, surgery, and strong drugs like opioids usually aren't very effective for persistent back pain in the long term. They come with risks and can have unhelpful side effects. So finding low-risk ways to put you in control of your pain is the key. To read the full paper for free, search Back Pain Facts BJSM. If you'd like to watch the patient stories behind the facts, click the link in the description. So we've just heard um, the video, the audio of the video for um, the Back Facts video that we, mm. has been published by BJSM now. Um, I wanted to get a bit of an insight into the behind the scenes of that mm. paper. That paper has been, it's kind of blown up in the, in the um, journal space, journal article mm. space. It's a really popular article. Uh, and I think, you know, this story behind the, the article will kind of help explain or, or partly explain why it's been yeah. so popular. Yep. And it also gives a nice insight into where all these facts and myths come from. Um, so can you kind of, Pete, you, you were the lead author of that, yeah. that paper. Can yep. you give us a bit of a backstory? Yeah. So um, we've been involved in a, a research trial in Australia. Um, and part of that trial, we were involved in um, sitting and watching other clinicians work with people with disabling back pain. And so part of, part of our job was to sit there and watch um, and listen to people's stories, essentially. So we probably had about 80 to 90 patients um, who were all profoundly disabled with back pain, pain for a long period of time, um, who told this story. And so part of this process was um, mentoring and feedback to the physios who were working with them. And so I was typing up their stories. And it became very clear that there were the, these very clear beliefs that these people had that were given to them through societal messages, given them to them through family, given them to, through um, uh, messages from healthcare practitioners, which were not evidence-based. But these facts were things that massively impacted on their life. Um, that influenced the way they cared for their back, that influenced their lack of hope, that their sense of despair, their levels of distress, and that these facts, um, uh, these, these kind of beliefs uh, were not evidence-informed. 
And so as I went through this process of writing this up, I realized that um, actually there were some consistent themes that kept emerging in all these people. And so I essentially wrote them up. And then we, I remember having this conversation and saying, we actually need to write um, this, these facts and myths up to give as a handout to patients. Uh, because they need to know this stuff because this is kind of like common stuff that if you hand to someone, they'll go, oh, shit, I believe that. Oh, God, I believe that. And so it's actually the kind of thing you can share with someone. Uh, and so I um, went through this process of writing them up uh, and then I flicked the – and you were involved in the infographic – and then I flicked it to BJSM and said, look – I know you guys run infographics and we think this would be of great interest to the readers of the British General Sports Medicine and they're like going, yeah, we really like that. Would you like to write it up as an editorial? So that was how that whole process began and that's where it ended up. Uh, and the cool thing is, is that the, that um, that infographic and that knowledge is now being translated into posters that are running in the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, for example. Mm. So it's actually been disseminated. It's been put into different languages. It's been rolled out into, uh, like, through the world. That's just gold in my mind. And I I go, why is that being so interesting? And I think because it finally hits our core. I'm like, that's what I believe. Uh, And so when something hits your core, it's something you want to know about. Awesome. So that's the story behind the paper. That is a fantastic segue to my next question, which is around the core. Right. So one of the myths that comes from um, the paper is that you know core strength is important. You know you have to brace your core if you're when yeah. you're lifting. You have to brace your core when you're you know sitting down, like we're talking here. You have to brace your core when you're washing the dishes. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Uh, and we we see this in um, not just our profession, but um, you know. Um, personal trainers and, yeah. and manual handling yeah. and occupational therapy. Yeah. So, so what's the go with the core? Yeah. So, I suppose a simple way of talking about it might be using we use the analogy of the wrist. So, what's a healthy functioning wrist? Well, your wrist can it's got this amazing capacity to move three dimensions, like the back. It's got an ability to find motor control stuff, like you know writing or playing a musical instrument. Well, you want your your muscles around the the wrist to be relatively relaxed so it can move. But it also has this amazing ability to grip hard so that you can create stiffness to open something up or if you're, you know, a boxer to box on or whatever. Um, but actually what's not healthy for the wrist would be to walk around clenching it all day, <laughs> not relaxing it. So in the same way with the core of the back, you've got a whole bunch of muscles around the spine that are involved with controlling the spine in three dimensions, right? And those, and those muscles are not meant to be doing much when you're sitting and standing and <laughs> moving in a normal way. And they should allow you to facilitate movement in three dimensions if you're doing normal activities of daily living. But if you're lifting a monstrously heavy weight, then those muscles all get together and they tense up for a very short period of time to enable you to generate power and stiffness. The problem with pain is that we start doing the clenching thing sitting standing, getting out of a chair, picking up a sock, and like going, getting off the loo. That is not normal. And, and unfortunately, we've taken something that is a good thing, that is to be very strong and powerful and controlled in the body, and we've translated it to kind of adopting these bizarre, guarded, protective movements in a way that is not normal for the human body. And in fact, it's not helpful. Mm. So what we know about clenching your fist is it creates a lot of um, compressive load through the structure in the same way that over-contracting the core does for the back. 
Is there any danger with that? No, but if you do it all the time, those muscles will fatigue mm. and you're putting compressive load on structures that might be sensitive and you're not allowing those structures to move in a normal way. And we know the human spine needs movement and cyclical loading for its health. So fundamentally, we're teaching the people to do things that are not normal and not healthy if they're engaging those core muscles all the time. Awesome. And unfortunately, that principle became almost part of a, of a management approach where we developed this idea, you know, back in the day of creating motor control around creating stability around the joint because a stable joint is a healthier joint. And it was translated to, to patients and, as you said, for personal trainers, for their clients, that you have to stabilize your body to be able to do an activity. Mm-hmm. And that become they get themselves trained into tensing up. So when you are in pain, naturally your body tenses up. Now, if on top of that, you're being told to hold your body strong and suck your core in and keep your spine in a neutral position, that creates a lot of stiffness. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we see a lot of patients that come into the practice that have been told that same message across several clinicians that they've seen. They could be medical doctors, they could be surgeons, they could be physios, they could be personal trainers that reinforce that message. And in fact, when you get them to sit in the way, for instance, that they feel comfortable and it's their preference, it feels better. But they they say, well, I don't do this because that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Isn't that bad for you? Isn't allowing your back to relax bad for you? Mm-hmm. And so those messages are really strongly put in, the, in society. Mm-hmm. And if we look at something like the common sense model, which is something that we, um, we use as a framework to to, to understand patients and also uh, as part of research, you know, where the, the way you understand a problem comes from messages that are from your family, from your friends, that are uh, ingrained in society, and that shapes how you understand the problem, and based on that, you act to resolve that problem. So it shapes your behaviors. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's effective, your emotional response is positive, and it makes sense, and you go on with life. Now, if it doesn't make sense, your emotional response is to become frightened and distressed and more worried about that body part. Because in fact, you're following the rules and you're not getting the benefit that you should be doing. So you've got to get better at following those rules. Mm. Because if they are the rules, that should work for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the thing to clarify here is that being strong in your core is good. Mm. It's a good thing. So if you're involved, like, you know, we mountain bike, for example, well, you'd want to have, you want strong back muscles and you want strong muscles to go over a jump, and to, but you don't want to have those muscles on all the time because you'll fatigue rapidly. Um, you need a strong core if you're, like, digging and twisting or if you're pushing or you're tackling or if you're engaging in some heavy loaded activity, you need a strong core. But you don't need them on all the time. You only use enough for the task. In fact, what we know about motor learning is that you, as you get better at something, you'll get more efficient. And often this whole idea of rehabilitation is you need more because it's better. Actually, most what we know about motor learning, and certainly people with pain, as they get better, they use less, mm. not more. And so um, learning to move better doesn't engage more motor activity, often it engages less. Yeah, yeah, and we see that with some of the studies that, that come out that look at people with and without pain. Yeah. Those with pain yeah. typically uh, tense their yes. core more. Um, and, and doing they get better, exactly. yeah. they, it's associated, them getting better is associated with tensing their core yeah. less, yeah. or their back muscles yeah. less. Exactly. And that probably highlights they're not protecting their body part as much. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
uh, we're hearing the word protection, um, the, the core and the spine, you know, the, this idea that maybe, um, you know, the core comes from this idea that the spine's unstable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of, that tends to drive this narrative that your back's fragile and you have to be mm. careful with it and mm. it's vulnerable. So, mm. of course, you'd protect your core and, and mm. brace your core when, you, when your back's vulnerable. But mm. is that true? Is the spine vulnerable? Um, so, I suppose you could come back and question and say, are human beings vulnerable to back pain? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. We know it's like one of the most, it's as common as the cold. It's really, really prevalent in society and it can really disable you. Is the human spine vulnerable to injury? Yeah, it can be. So we see that there's a group of people who are vulnerable, say, to disc prolapse or to straining their back. Then what are the factors that leave those people vulnerable? Um, that's the next question. Um, and so there are things that are actually really interesting. So we know that um, if you look at what predicts an episode of back pain, it can be a bunch of factors. So if you're really sedentary in your job and you're deconditioned and you go out and you start digging ditches, that's to me a bit like sitting around all day and then running a half marathon. Are you likely to get a sore knee if you run a half marathon? If you've been sitting around all day, yeah, you're probably well because those legs aren't conditioned to running a half marathon. So, so is the back vulnerable? Yeah, it is vulnerable if you don't keep it healthy. And so that... That's consistent with lots of things in, in the human body. You know, is your heart vulnerable? Yeah. So if you smoke and if you don't eat shit and you eat shit and, the, and you if you don't um, exercise and you've got, a, if you've got a risk factor for cardiovascular disease that might be genetic, then yeah, you're vulnerable. Your heart is vulnerable. But if you keep active, keep healthy, keep moving, have a good diet, you, you know, good sleep or manage your mental health, then your risk for your heart is significantly less. And I see the, the back is a bit like the heart. Mm. That if you, um, what do we know about backs? They, it loves to move. It loves to be active. It hates to be sedentary. Um, it loves to be strong. It loves to be um, engaged in physical activity. It needs sufficient rest and sleep. Um, it benefits from people's social engagement and mental health. All of those factors and not too much body fat, all of those factors influence the health of the back. So, yeah, we have vulnerability in our backs. And, you know, having had episodes of back pain in my life myself, there have been certain events. Some have been trauma, exposed to forces that are beyond my strength and my body structure. Others have been too much tension and stress and other factors that have influenced that. It's vulnerable. What it means and what we do about it is another question. Would you say it's more vulnerable than any other body structure? Um, I think for some reason, vulnerable to pain, probably. Yeah. So vulnerable to damage, probably not. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So vulnerable pain, yeah. yeah, definitely. We know it's a really, really common cause of pain. Uh, so it is a vulnerable region of the body that when, when, this, when our homeostasis or our... Um, and our, our world environment is threatened for some reason pain emerges in our body and often it goes to the neck and the back or the pelvis for some reason that's probably partly linked to how our whole nervous system is operated mm. um, but is it structurally vulnerable um, for some people there would be evidence that yeah that they may have to care for their backs more than others but I don't see that as different than say for some people, they've got to care for their cardiovascular health yeah. way more than others. Mm. And I see it within understanding where your vulnerabilities are and then optimizing 
the things you can change around that. And then understanding that it's also adaptable. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really important. Yeah. You're not, you're not stuck with your fixed. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, we have this kind of dichotomous view of like it's, it's structure or it's not structure. Well, actually, very often back pain is linked to structure. Most often it is. But is it, I think the point you raise here is that, is that, are you damned with that structure? No. Like, what can you do to manage that structure, to keep it healthy? And it's a bit like the story of, say, knee arthritis. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a bit like, you know, how do you manage that to keep that region as healthy as you can? That's the question. And the other thing, too, is we talk about the back being vulnerable. But when we listen to patient stories, we often find that they had a period of, their time, of time of their life that they are vulnerable to pain. Mm-hmm. So they can be under-stressed, under-exercised, uh, under eating crap, so a period like COVID-19 is a mm. classic for that. We had a lot of people that changed significantly their lifestyle and they had pain emerging or they became highly distressed and they had pain. So it's, it's an expression of your, of your health system. Um, so looking for a vulnerability around a period of time in their life may explain the story better and a lot of those factors may be modifiable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you kind of mentioned before that a lot of times pain is related to structure. Mm. Then surely with our advances in our medical technologies, and we have seen this historically, mm. that um, you know, we've been hunting for the reason to mm. explain the pain, mm. been hunting, mm. looking for it on a scan. So mm. um, that's probably uh, opened up this you know, whole rabbit hole of, of mm. uh, maybe inefficient care. Mm. Um, can you talk to... When is a scan important, but yeah. probably more important, what's, what's the go with scans and back pain? Yeah, so a lot of people think we're anti-scan. And for me personally, I've had a number of scans in the last few years for other health issues, and those scans have been really helpful. They've diagnosed clots in my leg and uh, clots in my lungs, which has probably saved my life. So scanning for certain things is really, really important and potentially life-saving. Um, in terms of the back... I can think of patients in the last year who I've referred for scans. And if I kind of think of them, young girl, he had a tumor in, a, in his spine, was referred for a scan. Um, uh, that was really important because she could have lost, she could become a paraplegic, basically. Um, uh, another lady who I saw who had a massive disc prolapse, um, who had lost bowel, uh, bowel and bladder function, had lost neurological deficit, and I, I, she'd, had, she'd had a scan and I rang the surgeon. So that scan was really important for her. She had surgery that night. Um, uh, I've had other, other patients recently who've had a neurological deficit. So with a lost power and sensation in their legs, um, they needed a scan um, because that was progressive. So not quarter equina, but progressive. Yeah. Um, I've had a, a guy who had an acute injury in the surf um, and he wasn't getting better, and he had a fracture. Mm. So he had fractured his, um, his spine, and he just needed the scan to know that he had to back off because he was a guy who just wasn't going to back off. So even though he probably would have got better with the passage of time, he was not giving his spine the chance to heal. Um, I've had other uh, clients who've um, uh, had a scan where there have been, say, motor changes or in plate edema or swelling or inflammation around the, um, the disc, uh, the bony structures around the disc. And that, we know, can be a source of pain. And so it's, we've modified the management plan for that person in, in response to that. 
So I think it's not like there's nothing, you don't ignore what's on a scan. Um, the one thing that's tricky about a scan is that as we get older, our scan results change. And so we know that um, it looks like there's, well, there's emerging evidence that at a young age, um, significant changes like this change on the scan look like they've got a higher association with pain. But we know that as you get older, everyone, all of us have changes on the scan that are normal age-related changes. And the problem is that gets all messed up. And then the messages we give people about their scans get messed up as well. So people, for example, the public think if they've had a dysprolapse, it's there for life. Mm. Well, we see it. It's like an acute event that reabsorbs rapidly, usually over a period of months. So those things are not forever. Those momentary events that are modifiable. We we know that degenerate. You can have a degenerate disc and function at a high level. Uh, you can have a disbulge and function at a high level. So we know a lot of these things that we think of pathology are present in highly active athletes who are using their body every day. So we know that there are certain things that are important that we need to identify, that we need to address with the scan. But there's lots of stuff on a scan, like you know, mo- moderate degenerative change, for example, um, fissures, bulges, prolapses in the absence of neurological deficits that may not be, there may be chance findings mm. that are part of your normal picture that we shouldn't be giving too much attention to and we certainly shouldn't be protecting. So it's a tricky role as a clinician it is. to marry the story of the patient with the picture on the scan and say, is this relevant and important for you in this context? Are those things modifiable? Can we manage this in a different way? Yeah, and it's even harder for the patient when they're they're getting told these messages around. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know this, this, these are episodes, and you've raised some really nice examples of when people should get scans. Yeah. But um, you know, in the broader ecosystem of the health system, yeah. that maybe well, the data suggests that it's not um, happening no. that well. And That's actually, right. we're probably a bit scan happy and, and yeah. sending for too many scans. Yeah. And to be fair, it's only about. Five percent of the population, where what you see in the scan is probably really, you know, significant yeah. in terms of that problem, and of that group, that may be only a momentary thing anyway. That's exactly. is modifiable. Yeah, and I think that's really important to highlight is that people can have pathology on the scan. Yeah, that will change. It can get yeah. better. Yeah, but that you know that's kind of can be unrelated to whether their pain gets better. You exactly, know, they might have ongoing pain. Yeah, even exactly. Their scans yeah. healed, but yeah. they don't know that their scans healed yeah, and exactly. they've still got, still got yeah. pain. Yeah, and the belief that you need to protect that body yeah. part if you do have a finding in a scan actually can preclude you from working on things that would Be facilitate the process. Yeah. So if you have a disc prolapse with, you know, with a with nerve compression and it, it is quite an inflamed structure, you want to take an anti-inflammatory approach, which will include you know working on your sleep, managing stress, keeping you active, getting your movement in a graduated manner, in a non-provocative manner. And that can actually increase the health and facilitate your body to, to heal that and reabsorb that, that mm. prolapse. So this idea that you need to protect when there is pathology mm. uh, is true to an extent. You need to protect from highly provocative uh, from, uh, activities, but the, the management actually should facilitate the healing of the body. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's kind of... Um, 
paradoxical in a sense because if you have been told that you've got a disc bulge and the, mm-hmm. the common narrative, um, sort of the false belief out there is that when you bend over, you're going to mm. shoot your disc out the back or it's yeah. kind of like mm-hmm. a bar of soap with this yeah. really vulnerable To that, really unhelpful. Then, yeah. of For course, me. you're going to yeah. protect and tense. Yeah. You're not going to go out and get that normal, yeah. healthy movement. Yeah. You're going to be stressing because you can't yeah. work or you can't yeah. look after yeah. that. And that's going to impact your sleep. So you can really yeah. easily see how people yeah. get down this rabbit yeah. hole. And there was a lovely paper that just got published looking at um, people who are active versus people who are inactive mm. and tracking them over time and showing that the people who are active had healthier looking spines yeah. than those who were inactive. So we know there are lots of factors around lifestyle, obesity, um, engaging in physical activity, etc., that are really important for the health of your spine. And unfortunately, we've got a, um, a growing number in our community who are more and more vulnerable because of their lifestyles. Yes to developing problems with the structure of this one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, final question. Now, this is uh, a controversial one, so controversial that there's a PhD student doing a whole topic on it. Uh. Um, Nick Saracini. So, uh, um, yes. <laughs> this, this comes up I a lot. I love this question. <laughs> uh, should we lift with a straight back? So, um, this is a... Sorry, go. Well, I was just going to say, let's talk broadly about... Yeah. Lifting and back pain. Yeah. So, um, so Nick's project is a really interesting project in that um, it looked at the it looks at the evidence. So we have this incredibly common view in society that lifting with a round back increases your risk of injury, and that's come out of a couple of studies, really early studies, looking at putting you know measuring pressure within the spine and looking at different postures and like if you hold a forward bent posture there's more load on the disc than if you're straight there was a kind of view then that oh my god there's more pressure on the structure it means it's at greater risk of injury so we have this view that actually loading something increases its risk of injury where actual fact we know that loading something makes it stronger yeah (laughs) so that's a major problem with that extrapolation straight up um, the second thing around that is that those studies never actually measured the angle of the spine. They just measured trunk inclination. Um, that was followed up with other studies that put um, pig's discs or spinal segments in uh, vices and repetitively bent them and found that if you repetitively bent a disc over time, or actually what fractured was the end plate, yeah, exactly. uh, not the disc itself. <laughs> And it kind of makes sense because if you get a, any structure and you do this to it, an advice is going to break. Um, the question, the thing is, that was never, ever tested. Well, it's never been confirmed in real people like me, living tissue. Um, uh, so the next study looked at um, to all the evidence available in the literature to say, is there any evidence to say that actually bending with a round back or flexing your spine when you're engaged in lifting is a risk factor for back pain. And the answer is that actually there are, what was there, about 11, 12 studies, I think. Um, some were of good quality, some were of pretty crappy quality, but there was no evidence for it at all. So that raises a question. So we have this ergonomic industry or manual handling industry that says lift with a straight back because you'll protect your back. There's actually no evidence for it. So if you look at the, the literature that has instituted those recommendations, it hasn't reduced the episodes of back pain at all. Uh, so one, it hasn't worked, and two, it's not evidence-based. 
So the question then is, what is evidence-based? And that's a tricky thing because actually the evidence is pretty um, limited at the moment in that space. Now, if you take a broader view of going, what's healthy for the human body? What's healthy for the human body is actually moving in a variety of ways is good for it. Being fit for task is good for it. So if you're engaged in a manual job and you've got to lift off the ground, it, it's, it will be impossible to lift with a straight back. So you have to bend to do that job. Um, so you want to be fit and strong to bend to do that job. Um, so the question then is what's best to do it? And I would say you're best to learn to get fit for task your best to be conditioned for task um, and to keep all those other factors that are important for your health um, in check to minimize your risk. So there is also some evidence to suggest that you're more efficient if you're lifting off the ground with a round back than with a strap back. That's not to say you shouldn't lift with a strap back, but it may mean that if you're repetitively lifting with a round back that you can do it for longer because it's more efficient. You can get away with it for longer. Where straight back, you're going to fatigue more. Mm. So there is the the jury is out actually around what is best. But based on current evidence, we've got to take a sensible view to say actually there's probably a variety of ways you could lift. Mm. And having adaptability, if you're engaged in a manual job, to do it in a whole bunch of ways so that you're fit and conditioned and confident to do it when you're caught out that's probably smart. But make your job most efficient for you. That means engage your legs. It means that use your body efficiently. That, to me, is where the evidence sits right now. Mm. And what's best for you might not be what's best for, for me. Yeah, so every body, every body shape is different. And, and that's the bit Clueless that we ones. don't really know. Well, we know everyone's different. Yeah. And, and whether some people have more vulnerability than others around different ways. That's something that will emerge, I think, in the future um, when we you know, do more research on this space. Mm. But I think what it does tip into is some of your work, JP, that actually we have a lot of fear mm. around bending and lifting, and that probably tips you into what your work has shown. Yeah, and one of the things that we know is that it's a fairly commonly reported uh, situation where people say there was a trigger for their back. I just bent over to pick up my shoe and I had back pain. Well, I went to lift the box and I, I had back pain. And it's always linked just to that task as opposed to the context in which that happened or if you're actually fit for the task. Uh, and during my PhD, we, um, we had a, an opportunity of uh, evaluating uh, patients that had high levels of fear around bending and lifting. And then you can see the, the consequence of some of these myths that are in society where people became uh, completely unable to bend and they're very frightened to bend and they create structures or even using a picker upper to pick something from the floor because they have this really strong belief that if they bend forward something bad will happen with their back mm. um, and that kind of got us thinking about um, you know you can ask someone about their beliefs around bending and lifting and they may say to you that no it's okay to bend your back and it's safe uh, so we kind of designed this um, we use this this test called an implicit association test, which was designed um, uh, at Harvard University. Um, and we uh, adapted to ask the question, you know, is bending and lifting uh, with a round versus a straight back? Is it safe or dangerous? Uh, and the way that the test is, uh, is set up is it kind of, it picks your, your core beliefs. You don't have much time to consciously think about your answers. And we looked at people with uh, back pain 
that had higher levels of fear of bending and people that had reportedly no fear of bending. And when we look at the, uh, at the implicit beliefs, they had a very clear bias that rounding uh, your back when you're bending and lifting is dangerous for you. And that got us thinking. So if, if regardless of what you're saying, uh, you have this implicit bias. Is this something that potentially is spread in society? So we looked at, we investigated people that had no back pain whatsoever, and the same bias is present. So despite that, they reportedly say that it's okay. It's ingrained in their memory uh, that is not okay to bend and lift with a round back. So then we looked at how about we ask people that treat patients with back pain. So we got a bunch of physiotherapists that work with musculoskeletal pain. And we asked them, and the same bias is present. Interestingly, a vast majority of the physios were saying that bending with a round back is okay, uh, but when it came to the implicit test, they showed the same bias. So what that demonstrates to us is that the test is picking up on quick associations you can make in your brain, and if we think of the context that we, we look at based on that manual handling industry, everywhere you go, you see a picture of someone bending and lifting with a round back with a cross mm -hmm. and someone lifting with a straight back with postures that maybe you and I cannot achieve uh, with a big tick. So it's ingrained in our society that that's the way you should do it. And some people, they can't achieve that mm -hmm. and they struggle and they're trying to achieve it and they put their body, putting their body under stress trying to achieve something that they may not be able to achieve and they actually feel much more comfortable doing it in a different way. So this, um, this kind of reflects the extent to which a myth can be spread in society and the consequences they can have in someone's, in someone's life. You know, I saw two patients today that would uh, refuse to bend and pick something on the floor and round their back. And they're trying to get by with their life and doing that and they're debilitated by it. Uh, and, and that's basically from the belief that rounding their back would shoot their disc through the back, like you said. Mm. So I have a disc bulge and therefore I cannot bend forward. Mm. So it's really interesting looking back at that seminal and initial work of uh, Alfred Nackinson, which you know developed this idea of the uh, identify high pressure in the disc and stuff. If you follow his work, mm. his later work, 10, 12 years later, which not many people know mm. about, he was actually saying, look, I've done all these studies and look at the mechanics of the back, but what I'm finding is that some people are not satisfied at work, some people are more stressed, some people are not physically conditioned. So it looks like back pain is a little bit beyond what happens with the structure of the disc. Mm -hmm. But those papers didn't get as much attention. Mm -hmm. And we keep going back to the initial ones mm -hmm. because they fit the bias of, of yeah. our training. And I, th I think just on from that, JP, the, um, the, the, issue, the problem with that belief, as you highlight, is that when people become in pain, mm -hmm they revert back to belief. Exactly. And so, you know, you might be doing your job and getting away with it and very little people, probably most people ignore, you know, the straight back idea. But once they get back pain, they're like, shit, what do I know about back pain? Yeah. That's when they start straightening up. They start doing this. And yeah. invariably we see this in the clinic almost, well, I would say almost invariably we see people squatting to pick up a pen, yeah. sitting to pick up their shoe, doing this stuff, completely avoiding the bending in the back. And often once we get them relaxing and bending, they feel so much better. And whether that's a reduction in fear mm -hmm. or whether it's because they get to relax their body and start to moving painful structures, probably lots of reasons mm -hmm. why they benefit from it. But fundamentally, it's, I think it's incredibly unhelpful. Uh, but to change that narrative amongst the ergonomic or um, manual handling world, 
I think will be a massive, massive challenge because it is so embedded. Uh, and there is so much fear around back pain because it is such a prevalent problem. And it's really easy just to pin it on something simple like keep yeah. your back straight. And it's interesting because some of the patients will come back and say, yeah, look, I see all those posters, but I never really took care of my back. Now I know I should. And that's when they start mm. you know, mm. protecting mm. their back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the other thing too is that when you have um, pain flare-ups and... Uh, as you said, you know, you may come and see the physio, the physio will change your narrative, change your mindset, things are going well, and then you have a flare-up. And a lot of people get really scared of that flare-up and clinicians don't really like to, you know, know a patient that was doing well had a flare-up. But actually those are great opportunities for learning for the patient because they may have had a flare-up, those beliefs come back, those behaviors come back, and they are rattled because it's almost like that fear memory never goes away. It just becomes um, suppressed with a safe, stronger memory. Mm. But once you have a flare-up, that fear memory emerges. And then the clinician has an opportunity to uh, modify that belief and you know, shut down that fear memory and strengthen the safe memory. And as we see along the journey is that as people continue getting some of these pain flare-ups, they learn to manage and this becomes more of a you know, safe, the safe memories mm. tend, to, tend to win over time. Nourish the safe memories, don't feed the fear memories. Exactly. exactly. Um, break the rules. Break the rules. <laughs> I like it. Um, I just want to bring it back to a, a really clinical example as we finish. So say, for example, we've got a listener who does have back pain or mm-hmm. we've got a hypothetical patient who has mm-hmm. back pain and, you know, we're, they're hearing this stuff, which mm-hmm. for us is, you know, we talk about this stuff a lot, mm-hmm. but actually for some, for mm-hmm. lots of people hearing it, it's like, hang on a second, like, mm-hmm. That's yeah. completely the opposite to yeah. what I've been yeah. told yeah. and what yeah. society knows. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't really like sit with me, but you know, like, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go around my back when I, I'm gonna go bend and tie my shoe, and and then they have a pain flare with that. So mm-hmm. can you kind of talk to why mm-hmm. they might still have pain, even though their pathology mm-hmm. may chances are, you know, eighty percent of this prolapses here within the first couple yeah. of months. Yeah. Why have they still got pain when they bend? Yep. So uh, I suppose the first question is, is why did the person have pain? Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like, why do I have pain in my knee when I run? A lady today, pain in her knee when I run. Well, she's weak on that leg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when she's loading that leg, it doesn't have sufficient support. So it starts putting stress on the joint. And she's thinking, my knee's arthritic. Well, it's just weak. <laughs> so, so there's lots of reasons why you might have pain. And I think that's the first important thing. Mm-hmm. So I always say to people, if it's not broken, don't protect it. Mm-hmm. That's number one. <laughs> if it's not broken. So how do you know if you've got a broken bone? Well, you probably will remember that you've had some kind of major trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you, if you've got pain raging down your leg and, you, and you, people go, oh, I've got numbness, well, grab a needle and stick it in your skin. If you can't feel it, then you need to go and seek some medical care because mm-hmm. that means that you've lost some of the messages that come through your nerves down to your leg. You can't pee. That's important. Mm-hmm. If you've got a history of cancer and you've developed this onset of pain that's like um, significant and there's no real pattern to it, then you need to go and see your doctor. So there are lots of reasons when you should get seek care, right? So it's not something that, but, but if you're, you know, look at the context, like JP said, if you're tired and run down and stressed or you've done nothing and you've gone and, you know, done crazy stuff in the garden or whatever, you get back pain, don't freak out because that's likely that, and you'll often feel your muscles clench when you do it. Relax your body, engage with movement, keep doing normal stuff. Um, don't go straight back and dig your ditch again because that's just like not very clever. Um, and the body, a good chance, the majority of back pain 
over a period of four weeks will get better, no matter what you do. Mm. We do know that 30% of people are vulnerable to not getting better, and they're the ones who need to seek care. So in that first couple of weeks, if the pain is significant and distressing and it's limiting you and it's not getting better, then seek care, but seek the right care. So seek care where someone's not going to just leave you passive and do stuff to you. I saw a lady this week who went to see a, a clinician who told them they needed to be seen three times a week for 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. They spent all this money and they were no different. They were given no self-care strategy. So seek care that puts you in charge of your back, that gives you an understanding and gives you strategies to put you in control. That's the kind of care you look for. Empower people, right? Yeah. That's why it's the name of the podcast. Exactly. Um, or perhaps and, ask the question to the clinician, is yeah. there more to my pain than just my back? Yeah. Are there other things that I can do what else to help my, mm. my yeah. pain? Yeah. And sometimes it's probably important to, to also note that sometimes you need some help with that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because that, that yeah. is hard. Yeah. yeah. And look, there is a role um, in some cases for just strategies to reduce your pain. Yeah. You know, it might be a heat pack when you're really your muscles are really clenched. It may be some um, hands-on work that just gives you a window to get moving. Although a lot of the time we think it's important. In actual fact, you know, there are strategies like breathing and movement and gentle exercises that can just do that job beautifully well. Yeah. And it's cool because we've seen that before and we've experienced it ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we know that there are other options out there yeah. than just the tools that we've been Absolutely. taught at university. And ironically, having had lots of back pain in my life, I've never had treatment. <laughs> so it's because I know how to care for it myself. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for the chat again, guys. Good. Thanks, Thanks Kevin. Pleasure. So there you have it. Episode four of the podcast, jam-packed full of facts. We've received lots of great feedback about this resource, and with almost all of us knowing someone whose life is impacted by back pain, why not share this video with them? It may provide some insights, or maybe even some hope that they can get back to living. We look forward to having you again as company next time, when we delve into some of the stories behind the patients who presented the back facts, including a discussion with Joletta Belton, patient advocate extraordinaire, blogger, and just an all-round good human. But until then, remember to ask, is there more to pain than damage? Please note, what you heard on this episode of Empowered Beyond Pain is strictly for information purposes only and does not substitute individualised care from a trusted and licensed health professional. If you would like individualised, high-value care for your pain, sports, or pelvic health problem, head to the BodyLogic website and make an appointment. Theme music generously provided by Fervin and Cash.